beloved, our view of the end of the world is inseparably tied and related to our view of the beginning of the world. A Western intelligentsia says to you that you were born by chance. You will eke out a meaningless existence and then fizzle out into nothingness at the end. Uh, T.S. Eliot, in his poem Hollow Men, said the world will not end with a bang but with a whimper. Uh, he was 99% radically wrong and maybe 1% right. There will be a whimper, I'm sure, whimpers, but there will also be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the world will end most certainly not just in a bang, but in a very, very big bang, so to speak. The Bible says, in contrast, God is responsible for the world and the universe and the cosmos origin, and he will be responsible for its end. The word of God tells us of the God who began it, the God who sustains it, and the God who will end it according to his perfect plan and at the perfect time that he decrees. Beloved, the word of God tells us everything that we need. It tells us who we are, why we're here, where we're going, and why it matters at all. Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is our second message, delving into the area of eschatology in times in these two eschatological epistles. It's been said that when we come to an end times passage, we should approach an end times passage like we're approaching an intersection with yellow flashing lights. In other words, we proceed with caution, but we proceed according to the lanes, we proceed according to the speed limit, we proceed according to the traffic laws. And as students of the word of God, we don't have the option to say, I don't think I will go through that intersection, I think I will find another path. You see, godly Bible-believing Christians do differ on some of the details, but all Born-again men and women agree and understand on this, that the final solution to all the problems of the world lies in the hand of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who will make in his own good time all the rebellious nations of the world bow their knee. The Bible is a book of contrast, blessing and curse, promise and warning, light and darkness, night and day, sober and drunkenness, light and dark, us and them, us and them, the right kind of us and them. And as we go into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, there is a huge transition that takes place from the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5, a biblical us and them. We read and we understand that God has told us about us. He told us about all believers, both dead in Christ and those living in Christ. When he comes back, we'll be gathered together to meet him in the air. But what about them? What about the unbelievers? What about those who remain behind? That is what we have in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The end of chapter 4 is a word of great hope and encouragement. It applies to believers only. Again, both the dead believers and those living when he comes. Chapters 5 through 11 is not so much a word of, at its core, a word of hope, although it is for the believer. It is a word of threat, and it applies, the threat applies to unbelievers only, with, we will see, great application to believers. At the end of chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, that was new revelation. This was t teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, in details 
that not only had Paul and Silas and Timothy not taught the church in Thessalonica, but actually couldn't be found anywhere in Scripture up to that point in time. Whereas now, as we turn to verse 1, chapter 5, this is a reminder of previous revelation. Paul gives a reminder and appeals back to teaching that they had already received. The end of chapter 4 was needed instruction concerning the dead in Christ. Chapter 5 is a needed exhortation to the living in Christ. Our passage this morning is the first five verses of chapter 5, but I'll read verses 1 through 11 to take in its entirety. This is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, the outline that we have that I have for the sermon here today is uh, built on something that's a little bit unique. It's built on a radical sharp contrast in pronouns. We understand that every jot and tittle of Scripture is the Word of God, is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, training, reproof, and for correction, including every pronoun. But having said that, I don't remember studying a passage as I did here in the first five verses where there is such a sharp contrast from pronoun to pronoun with the radical and significant meaning. The four pronouns that we see here through these five verses are you, they, you, and then finally we. And our threefold outline built upon these is your sufficiency, their calamity, and our identity. Beloved, that would be that you and I, that we as sons of light and sons of day, and that includes daughters, that we would know how to live in the present, that we would know how to face today's discontentment and anxieties and how to deal with tomorrow's curiosity and fear. So, beloved, let's look at this first element here in the first two verses, namely your sufficiency. And what Paul does here is he appeals as he writes and perhaps answers the Thessalonians. He points back to what they already know and namely what you've been taught, what they had been taught by him and Silas and Timothy in those weeks that he was with them was sufficient. 
beloved, what you know, even when you are initially saved, what you know at your first point of conversion going forward is sufficient to point you and to go in the right direction. To be sure, we endeavor, we work hard to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But what you know and what has been taught is sufficient. Look at verse 1. It begins, Paul says, Now, as to... Uh, These are two words in the original Greek language. This introduces a contrast. It's a shift in thought, but with a connection to what took place before. So, whereas it is in our English Bibles, there is a chapter break and division here. There is no complete break or division in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Uh, By way of reminder, the chapter and the even verse numbers were added after the original writings. So what Paul is doing here, he's going from one aspect of the same topic to a different aspect of the same topic, namely end times. So when Paul goes, when we turn from chapter 4 to chapter 5, this is not a 180 degree turn. This is a 90 degree turn. It's a different side of the same issue. And by the way, this is the same transition that we saw back in chapter 4, verse 9. Uh, This is all under the one umbrella of Paul revealing to the Thessalonians and God telling you and me, which is God's will for your life and my life, our sanctification. And the three topics that Paul deals with is sex, work, and death. Three of the most fundamental foundational topics for man. And so in chapter 4, verse 9, the first eight verses, he dealt with the sexual purity. And then when he makes a transition to a biblical work ethic in verse 9, we have the same transition now as to. So the different side of the one topic, which is sanctification. Here we have under the umbrella of the end times message and the end times topic, this kind of transition. Now as to what he specifically says, look at the text. Now as to the times and the epics. Chronoi and Kairoi. The 5th century philosopher Ammonius said that these two words related to time are more about quantity and quality. Uh, The first would be more specific and the second could be understood as more general. The first, the times, have more to do with the measurement of time and the epics have more to do with the quality and the nature of time. And this is something that's not new revelation in the New Testament. Uh, Daniel put these two together back in Daniel 2, verse 21, when he says, it is he who changes, meaning God. It is God who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. Uh, Daniel is pointing to the sovereign providential hand of God, even in human affairs, even in the affairs of nations. But what Paul is doing here most immediately is Paul is echoing Jesus. Because Jesus, right before his ascension, as recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he told his disciples before he ascended to heaven, he said, It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Paul is echoing Jesus when he, write these, when he writes these words to the Thessalonians, when he had preached these words and taught these to them when he was there before. And then Jesus is echoing Daniel. Now, when we think of the Thessalonians, we need to remember that this young, fledgling church is a mature church, even though they're young. They were a model church. They were an example church. And when it comes to the end times, when it comes to the second coming, the return of Christ, we read back in chapter 1, verse 10, that they are righteously awaiting the return of Christ. 
So they had a right foundation, but what's taking place here is, as would be normal under the stress and the duress of seeing loved ones perhaps being murdered for their faith, and the persecution and oppression that was weighing down on them heavily in their society, there was a natural curiosity as to the timing of his return. And curiosity is not a bad thing in and of itself. In the same way, there can be righteous anger and unrighteous anger, so also there can be righteous curiosity and unrighteous curiosity. Your <clears throat> curiosity, my curiosity, is part of you and I being made in the image of God. It's part of God having set eternity into our hearts, as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. But they also understood that Christ is coming again and that they had some understanding that they need to prepare for his coming. So maybe they were asking, do we need to stock up on supplies? Do I need to get one of those big boxes of imperishables and order that off of TBN? Uh, do we need to retreat to a mountaintop or a cave somewhere to contemplate the lint in our navel? So their thinking, their curiosity, their thinking here that Paul is correcting is naive, but it's understandable. And so Paul continues on, look at the rest. He says, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, that affectionate address that he peppers throughout this letter, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Again, this points to the sufficiency of even this topic that what had been taught them before. And he, by the way, in that same transition verse that I mentioned before, verse, chapter 4, verse 9, transitioning from the sexual purity to the biblical work ethic, he said the same thing there. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. In other words, there's nothing to add to what they already know, what he's already taught them. So it might be, we can think of the example, maybe you parents might know this. If you have a young child and you're driving somewhere and you hear the question, are we there yet, Daddy? Are we there yet, Daddy? Are we there yet, Daddy? Incessantly going on. And that's well and fine coming from a young child that is lacking in self-control or maybe even has no self-control, but that's not befitting a Christian is the point here. We also can think, if we understand the teaching of Jesus, you may remember that Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son. So in his humanity, as part of his kenosis, laying aside of his divine prerogatives, in his humanity, he didn't even know the day or the hour, only the Father knows. Of course, in his omniscient deity, he knows all things. So point being, since Lord Jesus, in his perfect humanity, didn't know the time, I think it's safe to say that Christian men and women should not, cannot, and must not speculate. But Paul goes on, verse 2, he gives an explanation and a reason for the exhortation and even word of encouragement he just gave. Verse 2, he says, for, this is the reason why, you yourselves, as an emphatic, you yourselves know full well that this Greek word full, translated full well, it describes an exactness, a thoroughness. It's a word of precision. To the point, it is sufficient. This points to your sufficiency in what we read in Scripture and what you know. We understand that not only is it what they received, but it had to be a sufficiency of what was taught. So there was no haziness in Paul, Silas, and Timothy's teaching ministry. There was no mist in the pulpit that could become fog in the pew. And what is the specific topic? It's the same topic as before and times, but what is the shibboleth point? What is the lightning rod point here? Namely, the day of the Lord. For you know full well 
that the day of the Lord will come. Literally, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, this is the first New Testament appearance, chronologically speaking. Uh, it will be a major topic in 2 Thessalonians. In the order, we see it referenced in 1 Corinthians. We'll see it again in 1 Peter, but this is the first appearance of it as God was writing the New Testament letters through the human authors. And this is a topic that is dealt with somewhere between 19 and 22 times in the Old Testament. And beloved, the day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. It is a period of judgment, destruction, wrath. God outpouring his wrath on his enemies, beginning with a cleansing of the house of Israel. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the day of the Lord is sudden. It is surprising. It is certain. And it is most severe. Malachi called it the great and terrible day of the Lord. Isaiah said it is a day of vengeance. And beloved, understand this. When God pours out his wrath in the day of the Lord, there is both natural judgment and there is or will be supernatural judgment. And let me say this as a word of exhortation to the student of the word, especially one that would desire to be an advanced student of the word, it's good to now and then to look at God's revelation, not necessarily in the order of the books we have, but to understand in terms of chronology of how he gave this and when he gave this. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the first book that was given chronologically speaking was the single chapter book of Obadiah in verse 15, around 845 B.C. That was the first appearance of the day of the Lord. And it was in the context of God's judgment on Israel with the nation of Edom and God's righteous judgment on the rebellious nation of Edom itself. Um, then it appears in uh, Joel. And then the next appearance, chronologically speaking, is in the book of Amos. And in the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, what's taking place here is the nation of Israel heard and they had it taught them the prophecy that came from Obadiah and then from Joel. And so they were anxiously awaiting for the coming of the day of the Lord that the enemies of Israel would be vanquished. And what Amos says in a word to them is, yes, the day of the Lord is coming, but it is first coming to you. Listen to what God said through Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, the prophet says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leaves his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Uh, Amos prophesied that around 755 B.C., and part of the prophecy that Amos gave to the nation of Israel was the Assyrian captivity that would take place in 722 B.C. So that is part of the dynamic here. What God says is, yes, the day of the Lord, God will pour his wrath on Assyria, but again, it is first coming to you, Israel. Um, and then from there, the prophet Isaiah picks it up. And then the next prophet, chronologically speaking, is Zephaniah. And this is in the context of the Babylonian exile. Zephaniah wrote around 630 B.C. And in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through the end of the chapter, I won't read all of that. I would commend it to you for later study. But what we see here, and this is very key, when it comes to the day of the Lord, there is almost always in the Old Testament, there is both a near and a far fulfillment. And what we see 
in Zephaniah 1 going forward is there is this judgment of God that is coming on Israel at the hands of the Babylonians, and then there is also a future eschatological end times far and a greater fulfillment. When God goes from the near to the far fulfillment, it is from the lesser to the greater. But Zephaniah 1 verse 7 Be silent before the Lord God. Be silent before Adonai Yahweh. For the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. And then it goes on from there, speaking of more of a near-term fulfillment. But then we pick it up in verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. There's an imminent aspect to it, which again ties into both the Old Testament Imminence uh, and the New Testament imminence has a near and a far term dimension to what that looks like. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. Verse 15. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battles against the fortified cities and the high corner tower. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. Watch this. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. So, beloved, when we look at the day of the Lord, again, there is a near and far fulfillment. There's a national dimension for the nation of Israel as well as an international global dimension for all the nations. And the day of the Lord goes from the lesser to the greater. And we can say this as we would come back to 1 Thessalonians. Its coming is certain. Its timing is not. There are aspects of timing that are certain, again, both in the old and in the new. Uh, the 69 weeks of Daniel, the 600, excuse me, the 483 years could be marched down all the way to the very day of Christ's triumphant return. The seven-year tribulation, when the Antichrist, according to Daniel 9.26, signs the peace treaty with the nation of Israel, that will get the clock ticking on the 70th week of Daniel, those seven years. But there is an imminent forward dimension of that, which is what we saw at the end of chapter 4. So its coming is certain, its timing is not. And one thing, and, and many commentators uh, said, made this statement, and you don't really know who got it from who, but somebody at some point said this for the first time. One thing certain about the timing of the Lord's return is we can't be certain of the timing. Now, as we continue on in these verses, what Paul does here is he employs two similes. Two similes. The first simile, simile, just like a thief in the night. And by the way, I can't help but saying this. I was surprised in my study this week how many very intelligent, very godly people, men, don't know the difference between a simile and a metaphor. Just a little pet peeve. A simile is like or as. A metaphor is a substitution. Jesus said, I am the door. That's, that's a metaphor. Uh, simile is like as. So we don't want to call this a metaphor because in that we would say Jesus is a thief. No, his coming is like a thief in the night. So thank you for tolerating my hobby horse. <laughs> now, simile number one basically tells us that the day of the Lord is sudden and unexpected. It is sudden and unexpected. John Stott said in his commentary, the trouble with burglars is they don't tell us when they're coming. That's 
an axiomatic uh, truth that needn't be said. Peter, Apostle Peter, employs the same simile. In 2 Peter 3.10, he wrote, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. A few decades later, the risen, resurrected, victorious Jesus will appear to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 3, John records Jesus' words, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. And also has similar phraseology in Revelation 16, verse 15. But now, back here in Thessalonians, we can for a moment, pause and think about Paul, and we can think about people coming. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they went on their great missionary journey through Macedonia. And I can imagine someone saying, well, Paul, what was your evangelistic strategy? You were in the synagogue for three weeks, and then you were with the Gentiles some weeks after that. So what did you do? What did you build the foundation upon? Well, two things we know for sure, besides the obvious of man and his sin, God and his holiness, and Jesus Christ as the Savior, and salvation by faith alone, two things we know is Paul taught these new Gentile converts about Satan. We saw that before, and Paul taught them about the day of the Lord. I don't think that's in some kind of seeker-friendly manual for an effective initial evangelism strategy. But that was what God and how God used Paul. And the situation here, these dear believers, they might be saying, okay, you know, we get all that, but let's get to the details. Let's break out our calendars and our calculators and figure these things out. Let's figure out the times, the epics, and the dates. And Paul said no. Paul said no because, mark this, chronology without theology leads to mythology. Chronology without theology leads to mythology. Beloved, we don't need an accurate chronology beyond what God has given us. We need biblical theology. And getting back again, the purpose of end times passages is not about future predictability. It is about present responsibility. And that will really come out in full color in verses 6 and forward. So, it's not time for us to go sit on a hill somewhere with our calendar and our calculator. It's not time for us to retreat to the cave. It's time for us to go and evangelize the world. There's no need to delve into the curiosities and the intricacies beyond the level God reveals the intricacies. And as responsible students of the word, we cannot neglect those intricacies, but we don't go past them. And that's a challenge, always. I like what Alistair Begg said about this, that basically the sufficiency that, that uh, before I get into his quote, so the, the point here is your sufficiency, and your sufficiency, our sufficiency will shut down unhealthy curiosity. Now the quote Alistair Begg said, this shuts down a lot of Tommy rot I don't want to pay attention to. So beloved, your sufficiency in the word and what's been taught does shut down the unhealthy, unrighteous curiosity, but should stoke and fire the healthy, righteous curiosity, which is, Lord, help me to dig deeper in your word. So, your sufficiency. In verse 3, we have this first radically sharp contrast of pronouns. We move from your sufficiency to their calamity. Major grammatical change from you to they. So, when we think of the transition from the end of chapter 4, 4.18 to 5, verse 1, there is, to be sure, a difference of when. But the greater difference, as God brings it out in his word here, is the difference in who. God, we saw in 
verses 15 through 18, came and rescued all believers, both dead and alive, who were caught together in the air. So what about those who remain? What about those who remain? And what we have here is we move from the end of chapter 4 to chapter 5. We move from God's unmerited grace, our undeserved salvation, to God's merited wrath and man's deserved condemnation. We move from the hope-filled word in verses 13 through 18, chapter 4, to a horrible word from one human perspective of this fierce wrath of God, of this terrible day of the Lord, as we saw before. The return and resurrection of Christ in verses 13 and 14, that's the foundation of the rapture and the reunion that we see in verses 15 and 18. But also the return and resurrection of Christ also leads to the wrath that we see here in chapter 5. And just a side point here, beloved. Uh, if you have thought before of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18 is the rapture passage, let me encourage you to think of it as the rapture and reunion passage because the reunion is a significant component of it, even as we looked last week. But now look at verse 3 here in chapter 5. While they are saying, from the you to they, while they are saying peace and safety, and this is nothing new under the sun. In Jeremiah chapter 6, Jeremiah chapter 8, we read of false prophets who are saying peace, peace, when there was no peace. Ezekiel brought this out as well. And to be sure, this is characteristic of man in his rebellion against God. Man knows in his heart and in his conscience that there is a righteous God, but man suppresses that truth and unrighteousness, according to Romans Chapter 1, verse 18. So there's a general dynamic where man generally, unsaved man, unsaved women say peace and safety when there is no peace and safety. But there's also a immediate context that after the rescue of the believers, when these things begin to unfold, there is a more intensified, consecrated saying peace and safety when there is even more demonstrably, obviously, not peace and safety in the rebellion of man. And so when we Expand on that little pronoun they here in verse 3. Uh, these are the outsiders back in chapter 4 verse 12. These are the rest in chapter 4 verse 13. These are, in other words, these are the non-brethren, the non-brothers and non-sisters. So we move from the end of chapter 4 from the believers who have been rescued and finally redeemed to the unbelievers who remain and continue to rebel. And beloved, Understand this, the threat of the day of the Lord is not for believers. It is not for believers, and this is even part of the significance of these sharp contrasts in pronouns going forward. And we saw that the day of the Lord is unexpected, it's sudden. We see also here it's violent. And of course, we saw that certainly in the Old Testament passages, but Paul continues in the middle of verse 3. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Destruction, utter and hopeless ruin, complete destruction, perdition, death. This destruction is the opposite of salvation. It's the same kind of destruction that the Apostle Paul, who used the same word in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, where he says, These, so the outsiders of 4.12, the rest of 4.13, the they of 5.3 are the these in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. These will pay the penalty of eternal 
destruction. So there is the wrath of God poured out temporally in time in the unfolding of the day of the Lord. And there is the eternal pouring out of the wrath of God on unbelievers of men and women who die in their sin in hell. Now, we move to the, as we continue on to the end of verse 3, we come to the second simile. The first simile, simile number one, was the coming will be like a thief that is sudden and unexpected. The simile that we see here, number two, verse three, is it will be like birth pangs upon a woman with child. So this simile is sudden and unavoidable. But the, whereas the first simile was unexpected, this simile number two is expected. It's not a surprise. <clears throat> In this imagery of the birth pangs of a woman, this was a frequent Old Testament figure of speech depicting the time of Israel's tribulation, which is the initial phase of the day of the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 30 and Micah chapter 4. And it's the same dynamic that Lord Jesus said in his Olivet Discourse on Wednesday evening of the Passion Week when his disciples came and said, Lord, what will be the end of the times? What will be the sign and, the, and the, the sign and symbols of the end of the days? And he gave them his Olivet Discourse. And as Mark records it, chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus said, Nation will arise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Also recorded in Matthew 24, verse 8. Now, when we think of birth pangs, and you ladies who have had children, you will know this, birth pangs are unavoidable, and they are, bless you, they're unavoidable, and they are irreversible. And in the same way, the point here is just as a baby can't be turned back, so also the coming judgment of the Lord, of Yahweh, cannot be turned back. Labor pains are, I've been told, sudden and severe. They are painful, but... They also mean the baby is coming. And there is a ray of light that pierces through the darkness, even of the day of the Lord. And this is part of what Jesus taught in John 16, verse 21. He said, whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Beloved, Dear friend, understand this. Jesus' first coming was marked by humility. His second coming will be marked by victory. The day of the Lord marks the end of the day of Satan and the end of the day of man. It is, to be sure, a period of darkness and sorrow for the wicked. It is also a period of forgiveness, deliverance, and vindication for the people of God. These birth pangs herald the birth of a new age, a new earth, a new kingdom of peace. Birth pangs are sudden and unavoidable. If you ladies get yourself in that condition, they're coming. But they're not unexpected. They are to be expected. So in the first simile, there was no warning. In the second simile, simile there's no escape. That's why he says, look at the end of verse 3, and they shall not escape. Emphatic double negative. I commented on this either last week or the week before. Ooh, may. They absolutely in no way, shape, or form will be able to escape in any fashion whatsoever is the strength of this emphatic negative, even though they desperately try. 
And to get a picture, an image of that, let me turn to Revelation chapter 6. You can turn there if you wish yourself or you can listen as I read. Revelation 6, verses 12 through 17. This is part of John's vision on Patmos. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Pause there for a second. So, beloved, when Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse that there will be earthquakes and there will be wars and rumors of wars, just like birth pangs begin, but then they begin to increase and they, in, and they continue to intensify. This is also part of this unfolding outpouring of the wrath of God. There are great earthquakes, and then finally, at the very last trumpet, there's an earthquake that was so great and so mighty, like none ever before, which would even encompass the time of Noah's flood. But I digress. Let's get back on the text. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. Verse 13, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Beloved, dear friend, there is no escape. This coming wrath, that is what Paul was writing in this very early letter to the Thessalonians, and that is what John records coming from even the lips in Revelation chapter 6. The point in all of this, beloved, is man, woman, man and or woman, needs to be ready to stand before Christ. The Rapture and the reunion is a word of great hope and encouragement. The day of the Lord is a word of threat and warning to the unbeliever, even though it is a word of hope for the believers. As Amos said, it is coming, when he said the nation of Israel, it's coming, it's coming to you first. Where does the uh, cleansing, where does God's cleansing begin? It begins in the house of God. Friend, God's wrath will be poured out it will be poured out on his enemies in the day of the Lord, temporally speaking. And dear friend, if you die in your sin, his wrath will be poured out on you forever and ever in hell with no relief. Or the wrath of God, the holy, righteous, just, deserved wrath of God can have already been poured out on the man Jesus Christ when he died on the cross, when he died as a substitute for all who would trust in him alone by faith alone. In his humanity, he experienced the wrath of God on the cross. He suffered a crucifixion, as I'm sure you well know, is a horribly agonizing physical death. It was an even far greater spiritual and emotional agony for Jesus when he suffered the wrath of his father in his humanity. That is the good news of the gospel, that God's wrath can have already been paid for and quenched by Christ. So we have your sufficiency, we have their calamity, and then in verses 4 and 5 we have our identity. So we went from you to they, in verse 4 we go back to you and we don't get to the we, the final one at the end of verse 5. And what Paul is saying here is what we were by birth, what we were by nature, 
and what we have become by grace, by the transformation of the work of Christ. Look at verse 4. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. Darkness. This is the figurative of the kingdom of Satan, of sin, rebellion, ignorance, falsehood, hatred. Darkness is where spiritual disease flourishes. Jesus said, John 3.19, speaking of his first coming, the light is coming to the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And I feel like I have to say bless you since I said it once. So if there are any more sneezes, it, you know, I'll bless you. <laughs> and no worries, don't, you know, it's all good. Uh, and he says, but you brethren, this is the 10th occurrence of brethren. With these multiple references, we have a picture of the pastoral heart of Pastor Paul. And it also brings out the great contrast between what we once were and what we now are. Paul here gives affirmation of who we are. He'll continue in verse 6 and forward with an appeal to what we should do based upon who we are. But he turns his attention here to who we are. As he turns his attention back to his believing audience here in verse 4, after dealing with they in verse 3, he reassures that this impending coming threat of the day of the Lord does not apply to us. And so we, beloved, should take this as encouragement to live godly now in the face of the present distress, trials, and tribulations. Again, end times passages are there to promote, provoke, galvanize, encourage holy living now. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. He continues, verse 4 at the end, that the day should overtake you like a thief. Here, the Apostle Paul personifies the day of the Lord. And it's personified, and it will take the unbelievers by force, but it will not touch you. The great contrast between believers at the end of chapter 4 and unbelievers here is the latter. The unbelievers are surrounded by darkness and embedded in darkness. But by God's grace and mercy, we are not. And because we are not in darkness, as he writes, we will not be overtaken by the outpouring of the wrath of God. And we are transported, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's why Paul wrote the church in Colossae, Colossians 1.13, he, God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We've been transferred, we've been transported, and we've been transformed. Coming back to our text here, look at verse 5, 1 Thessalonians. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. You are transformed. Now, in verses 1 through 11, there are four great contrasts. Besides the contrast of pronouns, there's the contrast of these images. The contrast of darkness and light. Night and day. Drunk and sober. Asleep and awake. And Paul will tell us, God will tell you and me how we should live in verse 6 and forward. But first... He tells us what we are. We are sons of light and sons of day. That's a Semitic idiom. And basically, if you are a son of something, it means you are characterized by that thing. So a son of strength would describe a strong man. So when Paul says to you, and this includes daughters as well, he says you are sons of light and sons of day, this is more than merely being in the light. This points to our transformation in Christ. 
God is love. God is truth. God is light. Because God is light, as his children, we are sons of light. What makes us a Christian is not that we've seen a certain amount of light, taken hold of it, and applied it. Rather, we've been made light. Not just our environment, but our whole life. And this is why, do you remember what Christ taught? One of the great teachings he had in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are the salt of the earth and the what? The light of the world. Because God is light, you are light. You are the light in this dark world. And even here when Paul says to you and me, you are sons of light and sons of day, this also looks back to the day of Lord back, the day of the Lord back in verse 2. In other words, beloved, we will participate in the triumph of that great day. We belong, you belong to that great day. You will have fulfillment. We will have fulfillment of our being when this great day comes. Again, we lament the darkness and sorrow that it brings for the wicked, but we rejoice in the deliverance and joy for the redeemed. Beloved, dear friend, light is the promise of hope and joy. Darkness is the threat of despair and misery. These are two antithetical realms that cannot coexist. They can't mix. There is no neutrality between spiritual light and spiritual darkness. They are eternal opposites. That's why Paul said when he wrote his second biblical or canonical letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, what fellowship has light with darkness? It's a rhetorical question. There is no fellowship between spiritual light and spiritual darkness. We are either light or darkness, one or the other. We are, in a different word, either a Christian or not a Christian. There is no such thing as half a Christian or mostly a Christian. So then, We'd ask the question, how does one, how does one get transferred, get transported from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? How does one get transformed from being a son of darkness to a son of light? Luke chapter 1, verse 78, uh, the great uh, prophecy and rejoicing from godly Simeon. He said, because of the tender mercy of our God, with after Simeon saw baby Jesus, he said, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sun fries from on high shall visit us, verse 79, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Beloved, dear friend, this is where the night retreats, the shadows fall away, and this is the breaking of the eternal dawn. This is where sadness is turned into gladness. This is where light comes where there was darkness, safety where there was danger, righteousness where there was evil, freedom where there was bondage. This is where joy comes where before there was dreariness, sadness, discouragement, despair, and depression. And by the way, in our passage here i love it this is i think this is southern paul he says you all not if he said y'all or you all he didn't say you guys but all of you the least the last and the left out the lame the even in thessalonians the lazy all are included all dwell in the realm of eternal light beloved we live in the light of the lord's second coming as sons of light and that has meaning for us here and now. That means we don't aimlessly meander around in the dark. And then as we finish our passage, we go to the end of verse 5, and we have the fourth and final 
pronoun shift. He says, we are not of night nor of darkness. And notice the wisdom in the heart of Pastor Paul when he was speaking of the positive in verses 1 and 2 and then 4, the beginning of 5, he said you. But now when he gets to the negative, he says we. And that's what I even try to do here. When I am preaching and there's something positive, I try to go more towards saying you. And if there's something negative, I throw myself in the mix. In any event, beloved, we are not of the night nor of darkness. What Paul is saying, what God is saying to you and me is live your life in anticipation of the coming of Christ. Love your wife in the light. Love your husband in the light. Love your children in the light. Work your job in the light. Climb your mountain in the light. Golf your, whatever, golf in the light. (laughs) And beloved, Jesus closes Olivet Discourse. When he closes Olivet Discourse, he warned us against living wasted lives for passing things. He didn't tell us to check our seismographs to find out for the coming earthquakes. He said, no, be alert, be aware, be on guard, live holy lives. So practically speaking, this means we don't live our lives like this is all there is. And when life, as, as new creatures, life has come in, our lifestyle is a reflection of our life. And when life comes into the tree, leaves appear on the branches and fruit appears. And we don't call people to a Christian lifestyle without first establishing Christian life. Our identity, this is the point here, our identity is key to our activity. Our being is the essential for our behavior. And making an application of the topic at hand, before we get too bent out of shape on the details of the second coming, we better make sure that we understand the details of the first coming. And when we're talking with someone, we better first and foremost make sure they understand the details of the first coming before we get overly concerned with the details of the second coming. This means we don't overvalue things that are going to burn. This means we're self-controlled in how we use this world. We use the things of this world in moderation. We could put it this way. We use the world and love the Lord. We use the world and love the Lord. We don't love the world and use the Lord. That's what it means to live as sons and daughters of light. When Paul wrote to Titus, Titus 2 verse 13, Paul said that as believers, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. With that in mind, have you received what he brought? Do you live what he taught? Do you trust what he bought in its entirety? Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, that a a mere man, the foolishness of preaching, not many mighty, not many noble, but Lord, the power and veracity of your word is a blessing. It's a joy for us to study. Thank you, Lord, that these truths are the same as it was for those Macedonian, Thessalonian, brand new believers some 2,000 years ago as it is for us today. Lord, help us to excel yet more in all that we do. Be glorified, Lord Jesus. And Lord, for anyone that is here now, watching, listening later, that is not trusting in you alone, by faith alone, for their salvation, Lord, help them to own up to their predicament, to the doom that is 
like a dark cloud over their heads to the wrath that is earned from them and looming over them and let them run to you and plead with you for forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, that you do say that anyone, no matter the sin that comes to you with that repentant heart and asks for your forgiveness and trust in you that you would receive them to yourself, make them a new creature, adopt them into the family of God where old things have passed away and new things have come. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing and that we depart from here with this good message. Amen.